The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And we'd like to look at Jesus Christ's letter to the church at Philadelphia this morning. As we begin to look at this, I want you to kind of meditate on a question. Hopefully this scripture and the message will answer for you. But the question is, what does a healthy church look like? What does a healthy church look like? And I hope that you know the Word of God well enough that you have some scriptures coming to your mind that describe what a healthy church would look like. But what's very interesting about these um, letters to the seven churches of Asia is that I believe the content of these letters and the assessment of Jesus Christ of each of these seven churches was probably very surprising to the individual members of the church and to their perception of um, the other churches that their perception of that church was a little bit different than Jesus's perception of that church. So what's important is not necessarily what we think a healthy church looks like. Really the question I want us to consider is what does a healthy church look like to Jesus Christ? Okay, What does a healthy church look like to Jesus Christ? And it's a very interesting contrast between all of these seven churches, the ones that he rebukes, the ones that he commends. And I would dare say that the church here at Philadelphia in Jesus' opinion, as he writes this letter, was the most healthy of all of these seven churches. And I doubt that many people would have thought that from the outside looking in because they are described as having a little strength. Now, they're not very impressive to the world. They're not very impressive to the outside looking in. Uh, the church at Ephesus is the one that everyone would look at, right? The church with the heritage uh, that was established by the Apostle Paul and that had the Apostle John minister there. Timothy was a pastor at the church at Ephesus for a period of time. And they're one of the, the leading churches at the establishment of the kingdom in the book of Acts. But I would dare say that that church is the one who is rebuked the most harshly because he... Uh, threatens them that if you don't repent and return to your first love, I'm going to take away your candlestick. That's the only church he tells that, okay? That's the only church he tells that if you don't repent, I'm going to take away your candlestick. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have Laodicea, <clears throat> right? Who is the very prosperous, wealthy church. And you know they had the, the very nicest building, right? Mm -hmm. They had, they had the, the nicest, in today's terms, the the, the nicest technology equipment. They had the nice facilities. They had the really well-oiled live stream. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were impressive to the world, but I would dare say that Ephesus and Laodicea are the two churches that are condemned the most harshly. And another surprising fact is that neither one of them were dealing with false doctrine at all. You know, we would think the church that's right on the verge of having their candlestick taken away, they're, they're dallying in, in false teaching. Those aren't the ones who are condemned the most harshly. We're going to see here in Pergamos and Thyatira where they're dealing with false doctrine. I, I love uh, the wording of this. Essentially, he says, you have some things in, the, in your midst that you need to take care of. You need to repent. You need to uh, correct these people that are preaching false doctrine. But if you don't take care of it, I will. <laughs> That's how the Lord deals with false teaching. He says, I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to give you a shot to take care of it. But if you don't, I'm going to take care of it. So I'm going to take care of this false teaching. <laughs> I'm going to defend my truth and I'm going to defend my doctrine. But what was he more concerned about? He was more concerned about the church at Ephesus that had lost the fervency of love and the church of Laodicea who left him outside of the church, right? So isn't it surprising that the churches that are condemned arguably the harshest, and we could throw Sardis in there too. Sardis had a name that they lived, but he said, you're dead. Church was dead. He still called them a church, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I've been trying to meditate on what, what's the, and, and when I say meditate on this, uh, one of the most important things I want you to understand as we talk through this is that neither me nor you or anyone else is the deciding factor of who a true church is and who has a candlestick and who doesn't. <laughs> Jesus does not ask your opinion at the end of time who the sheep and the goats are, and he does not ask your opinion who the candlesticks are. <laughs> it's, it's his decision. But, you know, some of this is kind of surprising to me. You know, uh, some of the churches I would have thought... Uh, would have been right on the verge of losing their candlestick. He didn't tell them that. The churches that he condemns the most harshly, it's not those that are dallying in false teaching. It's those that had lost the purpose of the church. And that's to love the head. That's to love Jesus Christ. But the two churches that there are no rebukes to, these seven letters, God, Jesus Christ, as a loving Heavenly Father, as any good father will, he always encourages the children before you rebuke them. That's what you need to do as a parent, right? You don't need to just drop uh, rebukes on them all the time, and you know, you've done this, this, and this, and this wrong. No, no, tell them, this is what you've done really, really well. But, but, (laughs) there's some areas that we can improve on, right? And that's what God, as the loving Heavenly Father, does. He says, this is what you're doing really, really good. But this is some stuff we got to fix, guys, okay? And uh, if God wrote, this is, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this is something for you to meditate on today and uh, meditate on uh, in the weeks to come. You know, if God wrote a letter to our individual churches, what would it say? What would it say? What would, be, what would his assessment of the church be? Uh, I was thinking about um, in our November meeting, um, Brother Jeremy Wise was preaching from the uh, epistle to the Galatians where he says, look, you, if you leave the teaching of salvation by grace alone and you try to add on circumcision and you try to add on all these works, then you're falling from grace. You, you, you've departed to another gospel, and you need to repent. You need to uh, stand fast in the liberty 
wherewith you've been called. And I had some discussions <clears throat> after that message with some people um, about the letter to the Galatians. I bet they were shocked when they read what the Holy Spirit's opinion of their church was. Because I can guarantee you, I can almost guarantee you, that those people in Galatia, they were like many people in Christianity today, that they think they believe in grace, but you got to do something, right? But you got to pray, but you got to be. I believe in grace, but you have to perform a work, otherwise you're not really saved. And I think that those people in Galatia, they did not really realize that they had compromised grace. They're like many people in Christianity today that think they believe in grace, but they say you have to do a work to be saved. Well, your, your work just butted out the grace, right? I mean, there's no in-between between grace and works. <laughs> and when those uh, churches of Galatia got that letter <laughs> and Paul said, listen, you have departed to another gospel. I think that they really believed when they started reading that letter that they, they thought they still believed in grace. But the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul made it very clear, no, you don't. You've departed. You've departed from grace. So that was a very surprising letter, right, when the Lord kind of gave the true assessment. And I believe that would be true of any of God's uh, churches. I think the Lord would have it structured in a very similar way. These are the things you're doing really good, right? But these are some things we can focus on. These are some things we can improve. But what's really impressive about the church at Philadelphia and the church at Smyrna is that there are no rebukes in their letter. There are no rebukes in their letter. The church at Smyrna is described as being in great poverty. The church at Philadelphia is described as having a little strength. So isn't it interesting that from the outside looking in, people would have looked at Ephesus and they would say, wow, look at the, the legacy and the heritage of the church at Ephesus. And they're casting out false apostles. They're standing up against the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Look at all the stuff that they're doing. And the Lord said, you're right on the verge of me removing the candlestick. But from the outside looking in, I doubt that would have been the opinion of most people looking at the church at Ephesus. Now, let's look at the other end of the spectrum, right? The church at Ephesus, the church at Laodicea, and the church at Sardis are the ones that people looked at and say, those are the cream of the crop. Those are the healthiest, best churches that we have here in our area. You know what the Lord's opinion was? They're the worst. They're the worst. But you want to know who the, who the two churches are that the Lord does not rebuke? Smyrna, the poor church, and Philadelphia, the little church. Isn't that interesting? The churches that the Lord viewed as the most healthy and the most honoring to him is the exact opposite of what most people, even in this area, probably would have assumed before reading Jesus' opinion of these churches. Okay? The poor church and the little church were the ones who Jesus viewed as the most healthy. It's kind of surprising, isn't it? Well, it shouldn't be too surprising because the Lord takes the weak things of the world to confound the mighty, right? He always does things the opposite <laughs> of how we would expect it in the world. So this church here at Philadelphia and the church at Smyrna, 
there are no direct rebukes to, in this letter. What an amazing... I'm just going to let that sink in for a minute. If, if Jesus wrote a letter to our church, to your church, do you think that he might find some areas of improvement? I would say yeah. I would say yeah. The reason why is because I know I'm a member of the church. <laughs> and even if everybody else has got it all together, I know one member's still lacking. Okay? But how commendable that there is not, in Jesus' opinion, there is not one direct thing that I need to rebuke of this church right here, the Church of Philadelphia. But in the, in the eyes of the world, they were not viewed as very impressive. They had a little strength. And I think of the seven, we can make a very strong case that this little bitty church here in Philadelphia named after the Greek term phileo, brotherly love, the city of brotherly love, right? No doubt they carried out the name of their city and of their church for the Lord to commend them in this way. So a church that is identified and characterized by brotherly love, that's not rebuked by the Lord at all, let's look at Jesus' opinion of this small, unimpressive little church in Philadelphia that would have been the, um, the little brother to all these other ones that no one else uh, really viewed as that impressive, okay? Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. He tells pretty much all of them that, and that's kind of a sobering thing, isn't it? We know God's omnipresent, omniscient. He knows everything. He knows our works. Well, what's going to be the rest of the sentence? Well, some of the people, I know thy works. And this is the stuff we've got to fix, guys. But he says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength. But what is the characteristic of this church, this God-honoring, Christ-glorifying church that the Lord does not see of the need of any rebuke? What is the identifying characteristic of the healthiest of these seven churches? Thou hast kept my word and has not denied my name. unimpressive, steadfast, daily, diligent faithfulness. That's what the Lord is impressed by. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. In the midst of great persecution, behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Yes, you're enduring persecution in the midst of this, but if you remain faithful, you just wait. The tables are going to turn. And you know what? They may not turn until the second coming, but the tables are definitely going to turn, okay? And I will make you to have authority over them because, verse 10, because thou hast kept 
the word of my patience. You've remained diligent. You've remained faithful because thou has kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. I know that that you feel like Satan's all around you and he's tempting you. But guess what? I'm going to put a providential hedge of protection around you. I'm going to send my angels to encamp round about you. I will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, and no man shall take thy crown. Keep doing what you're already doing. Remain faithful. Remain diligent. Him that overcometh. On the radio recently we talked about that. Uh, overcoming faith. And all seven of these letters, they conclude with promises to those that overcome. And you can go and read all of those yourself. I tried to highlight those on the radio recently. And as I said then, I don't know what all of those mean. Because understand, Revelation is very figurative language. Language right. And all of it is very specific to the individual cities that it would take a lot, a long time to, to dig into. Um, but every one of those promises to them that overcome, let's just say it's a really, really good place to be, and it's a place you want to be, right? <laughs> uh, by the way, side note to, uh, to these letters to the seven churches of Asia, um, at a later date, I'd love to dig into these more if the Lord directed in that way. But uh, the language to each of these is so specific to the individual cities, okay? And I want to highlight here at the Church of Philadelphia, there was a temple, a pagan temple, that had a severe earthquake. Uh, if I remember my notes right, I think it was in 17 AD. So they would have been aware of this a couple generations before this. And the only thing that, rema that remained standing in this pagan temple after the severe earthquake, almost the only thing remaining standing in the whole town, were the pillars of this pagan temple. And isn't it interesting that the, those people that knew about that, right, in Philadelphia, that knew about even, even under the most uh, unstable, severe uh, circumstances of an earthquake, in a natural sense, these pagan temples, the pillars remained regardless of how bad the situation was. He said, if you remain faithful, you're going to be just as strong as, and stable of pillars in my temple because I'm going to sustain you. You see, that's the kind of intimate knowledge and language that God gave to every single one of these seven churches that are specific to that individual city, okay? But to him that overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And just like uh, in a natural sense, that pagan temple's pillar that did not fold in the midst of a severe earthquake, you will, because I'm going to, he said earlier, I'm going to keep you in the hour of temptation. I'm going to uphold you even when earthquakes are going in your life, right? So to say, you will remain faithful. You will remain stable as a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more out. <clears throat> I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. So this is a church that in the eyes of the world, but I think you could probably say even in the eyes of these more prosperous, more well-known churches in the area, it was viewed as having just a little strength, right? It was viewed as very unimpressive to the world. So now let's look at them in contrast to... 
the other six churches. Okay? The first one he addresses is Ephesus, which is arguably probably the leader of the churches in this area. And he says, Revelation chapter 2, and he introduces this in verse 1, and he says, starts out with the things they're doing well, right? As any good father would do. He encourages his children for this is what you're doing well, and keep on doing it, but you need to realign your focus. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them that are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake and hast labored and hast not fainted. That's all commendable, right? Uh, that's all things that we should be doing. And, but you also notice the... Uh, the gentleness of the Father coming out too. Yes, you're doing so great in all these areas. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. <laughs> he's about to threaten to take away their candlestick. But he says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against He's being gentle, <laughs> right? And many times that's what we need uh, to receive, you know, a uh, uh, soft answer, turn, turn away wrath, Right? You know, many times that we need that gentle spirit to be able to receive the message properly. <laughs> Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And again, I can only imagine <laughs> the church at Ephesus, you know, you have uh, this letter that comes from John. We know that John is, is on the Isle of Patmos, and he's isolated, and the way they typically did these is they gave them, especially since they're um, addressed to seven different churches, um, they would have given this epistle to one person and he would have went to one city and then they would have read it and then he would have went to the next city and then he went to the next city and all that. So Ephesus has heard, right, that John is writing us a letter and they're excited <laughs> they're really excited to know what john has for us we come to find out that jesus is speaking uh at, at, in his assessment of the church but i bet they were really excited all the way up until the end of verse three right <laughs> and then their bubble got promptly burst very quickly, because I don't think that this is the point. I don't think they realized, just like those churches at Galatia we were talking about, they didn't realize the reality of the situation. I, I think that in their mind, they were going through the logistics of church. You know, we, we all these other churches, uh, they're, they're standing strong against the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, we'll see over here in Pergamos. Pergamos is where they were, they were accepting some of that. So they may have been rebuking the church over here in Pergamos, right? I mean, not only are we standing up for truth, but we're rebuking these other churches who are falling away from the truth. So they felt like that they were doing everything right. And what an amazing sobering, humbling, eye-opening letter this must have been when they realized, yeah, you're doing all of these external things zealously, but you've lost 
focus of the purpose of why you're doing it. Do you remember um, in 1 Corinthians 13, that's the charity chapter? Paul says, look, if I have uh, tongues of men and of angels, if I have have the gift of prophecy, I have all these things, none of that matters if it's not done and motivated by charity, you see? And charity is based on not just this abstract idea of charity— you loving your neighbor and showing charity towards someone else is an expression of you loving God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. The purpose of you uh, casting out false apostles is not so you can brag about, oh, yeah, that's right. Last month we cast out two. This month we cast out four. We got a 100% return on casting out false apostles. And guess what? We're going to keep it going. No, it's about you standing up for the truth and the integrity of Jesus Christ. You see, they've lost sight of the whole boat. And it is just amazing to me, so sobering, that this is the church. The church who, from everyone else's perspective, and probably even to their own, own perspective, was doing everything right. That's the only church, he says, unless you repent, I'm going to take away your candlestick. That is how seriously we got to make sure that we keep our priorities straight. You know, It's not about going through the motions. It's not about doing the external right things. It's about having our hearts right, our hearts loving Christ, we'll have our hearts, soul, and mind. And if we have that right, then the external action should follow, right? So anything, everything they did is not bad, but they were doing it maybe even because of the pride of Ephesus Church instead of really to honor and glorify Jesus Christ, okay? But this church, this shows you how seriously Jesus takes personal devotion, right? This is the church that he says, if you don't repent, into verse 5, I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Okay, now the church is Smyrna, beginning in verse 8. I know thy works, verse 9, and tribulation and poverty. Yes, in a financial sense, in a material sense, you don't have much money. But understand, in the kingdom and spiritually, you are rich. Your poverty, parentheses, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, and are of the synagogue of Satan. He encourages them to remain faithful in the midst of tribulation, and if you do then I will give you a crown of life. No direct rebukes for the church at Smyrna either. But that's the poor church. In stark contrast to Laodicea, right? That they were rich in, or in their mind, they were rich and increased with goods, and they had need of nothing. And the Lord was ready to spew them out of his mouth, but the church at Smyrna was the poor church that the Lord was honored by. Then we get to the church at Pergamos. Church at Pergamos, I know thy works, and where you dwell, you're in the middle of Satan's seat. And also, Pergamus, they had had a martyr. They had had a member of their church physically killed for the cause of Christ. A faithful martyr, Antipas, who was among you. So they're, they're trying to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. They've even had a martyr. But the problem, though, is that they are suffering, verse 15, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Also, verse 14 I have a few things against thee because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block for the children of Israel. So they have this false teaching that is very similar to the 
false teaching of Balaam in the Old Testament. They're suffering the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And he says, you need to deal with this. Verse 16, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You know, we feel like that um, any degree of false teaching is the church that's right on the verge of losing their candlestick. It's so interesting to me that each of these churches are called a church, right? He didn't say you used to be a church. He didn't say you've lost your candlestick. If, uh, in my mind, if there's any church that was on the verge of losing their status of being a true church, it would have been the church at Corinth, right? I mean, look at all the problems they had in the first epistle. We're not just talking about, um, we're not just talking about doctrinal problems. They were, uh, they were suing each other in the law, having divisions. They were, they were um, using the communion service to get drunk. And the Lord judged them so harshly that some of them were physically killed because of them abusing the communion service. And then on top of all of that, they have people that are saying there's no resurrection. The resurrection is passed already. Everything about the Christian faith hinges solely on the resurrection. I mean, how can you claim to be a church and deny the resurrection? You can't. You can't. But you know the Holy Spirit still called them a church? How about that? That's why the Lord determines who has a candlestick and who doesn't. Okay? Now, both of these churches, particularly Pergamos and Thyatira, they were suffering some false teaching that they should not have been suffering. And he said, look, you need to deal with it. But just because they were ignoring that, the Lord did not write them off as being a true church. Okay? I love how the Lord deals with this false teaching, you know? He says, listen, you need to realize what you're suffering. You need to realize that you need to get rid of it. You need to repent. But just in case you ignore my message, I want you to know that I'm going to take care of it if you don't. And that's what the Lord will do with false teaching. He will not suffer it. He will not suffer it. He says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. See, that's how the Lord deals with false teaching. In our mind, someone that is getting close to departing from the true faith, those are the churches that are on the verge of losing their candlestick. You want to know who he threatened with the candlestick? Ephesus, who was standing up for truth, as they should have been, but they had lost the fervency of love for Jesus Christ. Then we get to Thyatira. <clears throat> Thyatira, I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. So, I mean, they're... they're they're increasing their, their, their zeal. You know, they're, they're doing more uh, now than they were in the past. But they were suffering uh, a woman in their midst that's equated to Jezebel. And he says, look, I gave her a space for repentance. The Lord always notifies his people, as any good father would, right? Notifies them of the problem. Gives you an opportunity to make a correction, and if you don't, then daddy's going to have to chastise the child, right? I have to involve myself. I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to notify you of the problem. I'm going to give you a chance to change it, and if you don't, I'm going to deal with it. And he says, 
I gave them a space for repentance, and she repented not. And now he says, I'm going to take care of it myself. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery, and I will judge them. He says, I gave you a chance to take care of it. You didn't. Now I'm coming to take care of it. Okay? That's how the Lord deals with false teaching. Okay, now the church of Sardis. <clears throat> church of Sardis. Verse 1. Unto the angel of the church was in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. This is sobering. Thou hast a name that thou livest, but art dead. So you have a good reputation. You have a good reputation among the other churches. You have a good reputation maybe even in the community. But the reality of the situation is that you're dead. The church is dead. But yet at the same time, he still calls them a church, right? Um, he didn't say, I'm going to take away your candlestick. Maybe, maybe they're not uh, as much physically dead as they are just asleep. Maybe they need to wake up. There's a lot of admonitions in the New Testament for that, right? Awake thou that sleepest. Arise from the dead, and the Lord shall give thee life. But this is a church that would have been right up there with Ephesus and Laodicea. Sardis would probably would have been number two or three right behind Ephesus. You have a name that you live. You, you, you have the reputation among other people, even among other churches, that you're a good, solid, healthy church. And the Lord said, listen, guys, you're dead. You're dead. But there are some faithful among you that have not compromised. And that's the case in every single one of these churches. Even if the majority is departing, you have this faithful remnant that is remaining faithful. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. He goes down and says in verse 4, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, and they are worthy. That goes right in line with what we saw in Philadelphia, isn't it? Remaining faithful in purity, not indulging in the wickedness of this world, remaining faithful, and God's honored by that. You know, we can't control what the, the whole church body does. The only thing that I can control, fast forwarding to the church at Laodicea, is that I open the door of fellowship individually with Jesus Christ, and if I open that door, he promised that he will come in and sup with him, uh, with me, individually, and I with him. So the overall church at Sardis was asleep and dead and lethargic, even though they gave the pretense to everyone else that they were alive. But he said, I've got a few faithful people in here that are still committed, that are still steadfast, that are making sure that they remain pure, being described by those white garments, not defiling themselves with things of the world. And he said, you need to repent, right? You need to repent. But the Lord said, I'm going to send my people to be watchful and strengthen the things which remain because those few that are, that are hanging on, it says they are ready to die. They're right on the verge. They're right on the verge. But I have a few people that are faithful, and the angel that these are that all these seven uh, letters are written to, uh, the word angel means messenger. That's most likely 
speaking to the preacher or the pastor of that individual church. Okay? So he's saying, pastor of the church at Sardis, strengthen those things that remain. You preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, remain faithful. But those people that are really plugged in, that are really zealous, you really focus on them because they're getting discouraged. They feel like they're barely hanging on. You strengthen those things that remain because they're ready to die, but they're alive. And the Lord can, and if we're diligent and faithful, will send strengthening and growth and revival if we're faithful to strengthen those things that remain. Okay, we looked at the church of Philadelphia and then Laodicea. <clears throat> Laodicea. Now, um, you probably know that Laodicea is the one church that he did not commend at all. You know, typically, these are the things you're doing well. These are the things you need to improve on. He didn't commend them at all. Okay? Because they felt totally self-sufficient. Thou sayest, verse 17, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Isn't that interesting? That <laughs> over here the church at Smyrna, that the church at Laodicea probably looked down on, they are so impoverished that they, they probably can't even pay their preacher, you know? Because everyone... You have to understand the atmosphere of persecution that they were involved in in this first century. If you're going to commit to follow Christ, you're probably going to lose your business. You're probably not going to be able to buy and sell in the local marketplace. So you don't have the, the money just for your basic necessities, let alone to be able to provide for the church. But the church at Laodicea had compromised, so they had not lost their business Instead, they, they were prospering because they had compromised with the culture around them. But isn't it interesting, the contrast between the way we see things and the way the Lord sees things? Laodicea is actually monetarily rich. They have the nicest building. They have the nicest facilities. They, uh, they pay for... in. If you'll just kind of let me use today's terms, we, we have the uh, biggest budget for a pastor to go get the, the most well-known pastor in the country, right? Uh, we are everything that the world looks at as impressive in the church. And we, more than that, we think we're rich. And then we see these other people over here, other poor people in Smyrna, Oh, it's so sad. They don't have anything. Um, they, can't, they can't provide for their family. They can't even pay the pastor over there. And the Lord tells the people at Smyrna, you are rich in the kingdom. And on the other end of the spectrum, he tells the people at Laodicea who think they're rich, you are dirt poor. <laughs> right? You are poor and wretched and blind and naked. The amazing contrast there that the rich church that would have looked down on the poor church, Jesus says, you're actually the one that's poor. And Smyrna over here, they're the ones that's rich in the spirit and rich in the kingdom, right? But especially with, uh, okay, seven churches. Here's kind of the overview. Seven churches, two with no common, no 
rebukes, two with false teaching, and three with lack of priorities, if you'll let me put it like that. Ephesus, Sardis, and Laodicea. And Ephesus, Sardis, and Laodicea are the churches that the, probably the churches individually, but um, the community, whoever was looking at this from a natural perspective, you would have looked at them and said, those are the healthiest churches in this region, in this area of, uh, of Asia. And the Lord says, no, you're not. No, you're not. Who was the Lord honored by? Little low, unimpressive Philadelphia that had a little strength. And what was the characteristic of this little band of believers that honored the Lord? Thou hast kept my word and hast not denied my name, verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. And then he says, listen, not only are you faithful right now, but I have a wide open door standing in front of you. And you know what? There are adversaries. There's always adversaries. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 16. I'm going to remain in Ephesus till Pentecost. A, an effectual and an open door is, uh, is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. That's always going to be the case. Every time we have an open door, there's always going to be obstacles. There's always going to be uh, Satan's forces galvanizing us to try to distract us from pressing into that open door. But even though, even Jesus Christ acknowledges you're in a situation and you're, you're in a an environment where you're having to deal with those that are the synagogue of Satan, you don't need to be afraid of them because guess what? They can't close that door either. <laughs> I've got a wide open door in front of you, and yes, you have enemies. Yes, you have challenges, but none of them can close that door. But here's the, the other end of the spectrum, is if you see fit to ignore this door for a long period of time, there is somebody that can shut it, and that's me, and when I shut it, nobody can open it either. Okay? But... The perspective here is that this is a little church that was unimpressive to the world that the Lord was honored by, that the Lord commended. And he said, you have nothing but open doors and opportunities in front of you. You know, I've been talking the last few months about um, healing our land and verses about the kingdom and and how we need to evaluate where we're at and um, what we need to be do, be do do better in the kingdom and and the my concern that from my natural limited perspective that there are many churches that unless the Lord sends special revival that I don't really know where they're going to be at in 15 years. And that's a reality, and we always need to be honest. You know, we don't need to stick our head in the sand. But I'm afraid that I may not have presented that as, as optimistically as I should have, okay? Because um, what we have before us, and, and this is true of any church, really, if we have the right perspective, if we have the right attitude, especially if we remain faithful to keep God's word and not deny his name, God has an open door sitting in front of us at any given time. 
So it's all a matter of perspective, right? We can look at this and we could say, oh me, look at the look at the trend line, look at the decline, and the, this trend line keeps going down, look where we're gonna be at in 15 years. Or, or we could take the perspective of guess what? We've got a wide open door and look what the Lord could do in the next 15 years, right? You know, that's the difference of perspective that we should have. And in the spectrum of Christianity, at, in general, the Primitive Baptist Church is viewed as having a little strength, right? I mean, we're not very impressive. Uh, I'm thankful for the facility that we have, but this is not that impressive to the world, right? I, I'm really glad we're not worshiping in a tent and we have to deal with wind and rain. We have a comfortable temperature uh, that we can set. I mean, it's better than it used to be, right? Uh, by the way, side note, I was looking at uh, some uh, photos of people uh, at different uh, church meetings, conventions, whatever, whatever, uh, in the early 1900s or 1800s. And it's funny how everyone talks about the good old days. No one smiled at any of those pictures at all. I mean, they are the most, they are the most, you know, mad at the world people. And of course, I mean, I, I get it. I, I don't like take. I'm, I'm a preacher. I don't like taking pictures after church either. You know, so maybe they were just mad. You know, like me, and they, they were mad on principle. You know, like we shouldn't take, we shouldn't take pictures. You know, I love what Brother Joe says. I'll oh, take a picture of those, take a picture of all these mamas that are. Uh, taking care of kids, all these sisters that fixed all this food. That's what you need to be taking pictures of, right? So maybe all of those ministers were just mad because they were having to take a picture. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes we're like, oh, man, the good old days. You know what? We got it a lot better than, than they do in, the, in supposedly the good old days, you know? Maybe there was a different reason they weren't smiling in those pictures at all. <laughs> it's because they had a very, very hard life. The problem with that, though, is that when we have prosperity, as we've talked about previously, when we have prosperity, we always get complacent, right? So maybe it's good. Maybe it's good to have. Uh, I mean, he says you have an open door, but don't expect there to be great open doors if everything's just smooth and easy. You're going to have to deal with some adversaries if there's open doors. But what I'm saying, though, is that there is nothing but opportunities before us in the kingdom. And especially the way that our culture is going. I mean, uh, if we just remain faithful, if we just remain faithful with what the Bible says, within the next, talk about that 15-year period, there are many churches that are compromising the integrity of God's Word in so many different areas. And if we just remain faithful, there are people that are going to be sick of that that are going to look for a Bible-based church that will not compromise. And if we do that, people will be attracted to that. And that's the problem with us just being in this general environment of prosperity and everyone just kind of, you know, from an outside perspective not really being any different. There's nothing to identify us from an outside perspective. Now, we've got, the, we've got the gospel, right? We've got salvation by grace alone. But the way that the culture is going, if we just remain faithful, other churches will compromise. And if we remain faithful, we will attract those that are not willing to compromise 
the integrity of God's word. What I'm saying is there is nothing but open doors in front of us. And hopefully, Lord willing, next week we can focus specifically on those open doors and what those open doors look like. But um, I'm kind of ashamed to say that, uh, and and again, I want to be realistic. We can't stick our head in the sand. Uh, As we've talked about, revival doesn't, uh, doesn't happen unless there's change, unless there's repentance. You have to realize where you're at to be able to change from it. But at the same time, the last thing that I would ever do is preach the funeral of half of our churches. <laughs> I mean, there is nothing but opportunities in front of us. There's nothing but open doors in front of us, especially if we remain faithful. And we hope to, Lord willing, expound on what those open doors look like in the kingdom. And we hope the Lord will bless our consideration of that in the weeks to come. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.